2023 is going to be bad for property markets, but how bad could it get? I'm David Wilder. This is a special episode of the Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. It's all about the property outlook. And I'm joined by Andrew Burrell. He leads our nine strong team of property economists covering the US, UK and European markets. Hi, Andrew. Hi there, David. Coming up, we'll be hearing from our US commercial team about demand in the biggest metros there. And from the head of our new climate coverage, David Oxley, he'll be speaking to Andrew about the property sector's decarbonisation challenges. But for now, Andrew, I'd like to talk about our 2023 outlook. You're about to conduct briefings with clients on our World in 2023 series of reports on the big themes for the coming 12 months. Your team's contribution to that series, which I'll be posting on the podcast page, makes pretty grim reading. Essential to our view of macro vulnerabilities as rates rise is this idea that bubbly housing markets were always going to be the weak link, and they're continuing to turn down as 2023 gets underway. With that in mind, how bad is it likely to be? What are our forecasts? Can we start with US housing? Yeah, obviously, property markets are highly interest sensitive. So the the kind of interest rates increases we've seen over the last 12 months, they were never going to get away unscathed. And given there was a fairly strong run up really since the end of COVID or the end of the worst phase of COVID, we've seen very strong price growth across pretty much all property markets, not least in the US where, you know, we've seen double digit increases, almost getting sort of 20% year on year at the beginning of last year. But as interest rates started to rise through the year, we've seen a slowdown on the US price measures. And our forecast is that this will continue into into this year. Affordability for purchases of, of housing has been really stretched by the rises we've seen in mortgage rates. And I think we're looking at something like an 8% peak to trough fall in US house prices. To put that into context, that's significantly less than we saw in the global financial crisis. And it really only reverses some of the rise we've seen since COVID. But nonetheless, it's a fairly significant repricing by, uh, by the normal standards of the market. And what about UK housing? Mortgage rates, obviously, last year saw extraordinary volatility at points. Where are they going into 2023? And, and what does that imply about what to expect on the price front? Our feeling about the UK is more downbeat, I would say, than in the US. That reflects a worse macroeconomic outlook in the UK. Inflation somewhat higher because the energy crisis has a bigger impact on European markets and notably the UK. So inflation is higher in the UK and we think the recession that's coming in the UK will be deeper than in the US. But it also reflects other things in the market, particularly, you know, the the breakdown. There are more fixed rate mortgages in the US, so it's slightly more protected from, from rises in policy rates than the UK. So in the UK, fundamentally, it's the same problem, though, that, that higher interest rates have pushed down affordability and it's harder and harder for buyers to uh, purchase a new property and now affordability is at levels that we we've really not seen since the global financial crisis and we think that demand will and already there is evidence of this that 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 demand will slow very abruptly within the next year and we could see in the UK a peak to trough fall in house prices from the highs of last summer of about 12%, so somewhat more than what we're expecting in the US there. And you're drawing this distinction between sort of relative macroeconomic prospects in the US 
where we're expecting a, a shallower recession than in the UK or Europe. So turning to the commercial property side of things, what does that mean for UK and European commercial property? Well, I think that, again, there is a difference between what we're seeing in Europe and what we're seeing in, in North America. And that, that's reflected in the kind of price changes that we're seeing there. So what we've seen in the UK, which again, as with housing, is a bit of an outlier on the downside. The UK commercial property market, which was, which was very strong only 12 months ago, has seen quite an abrupt slowdown through the year. We've seen some fairly punchy increases in yields in the second half of the year. And we've already seen a fairly big repricing. We think once the Q4 number comes out next month, we'll have seen, you know, over a 10% fall in prices in 2022. And that will continue in early 2023. And we're looking at the UK peak to trough on prices of something like 20% in this downturn. Now, you know, we always compare these things to the last crisis, the global financial crisis, uh, property values actually fell 45%. And property was very central to the macroeconomic story as well there. We don't think this is the same kind of crisis, but that, you know, a 20% fall wipes out a lot of the value growth that we've seen in commercial markets in the UK since the post-COVID rebound started in 2021. So it's quite a turnaround. Um, if we contrast that with what's going on in the Eurozone, the falls are a bit less, more like, I think we're looking at something like 15% there or up to 15%, certainly between 10 and 15% there. And it will obviously vary between the different markets and sectors. So it's, it, it's somewhat less, but still a pretty large fall there. And, and in the US, the, the downturn is something like 10% is our, is our current estimate for that. So there, there is a hierarchy. All of them are going down. Some are going down at, at a slower rate than others. And I think the one thing we need to think about going into 2023 is that some of the correction has happened, obviously, in terms of the yield rises we've seen already. But there's still some uncertainty about, you know, how much prices will fall, certainly in the first half of this year, because the interest rate rises are are relatively recent and they do take time to have an effect. So I think at the moment, given the latest evidence and news we have, we we would be also cautioning about downside risks in all of those markets and that the numbers could be slightly worse than we think. And it's very unlikely they'll be much better. So bad, but not as bad as the global financial crisis. I think there's, there's scant solace in that. But when yeah. you're looking across markets and, and sectors within markets and regions, are, are there any pockets of resilience that are worth highlighting to? And when you, when you speak to clients in your upcoming briefings, are you, are you going to be highlighting any resilience there they should be keeping an eye on? In a way that the recovery was actually quite uneven, I think the downturn will be more evenly spread across the different sectors and markets. I, it's very unlikely, given the kind of interest rate rises we've seen and the yield impacts we've seen, that any market will survive without some correction in prices, just because it doesn't take much of a movement in property yields to actually cause quite a sharp downturn in capital values, particularly as yields have been relatively low in recent years. So it's I don't think we're going to be talking about winners and losers. There may be some sectors that do less badly. Um, perhaps surprisingly, the sectors that have done quite well, in particular industrial, there may be some more concern that the those markets have got a bit hot. And they may actually come down harder. We're certainly expecting in the UK 
the industrial sector to have a bigger correction than say the retail sector in the UK. So that is almost an unwinding of some of the the benefits we've seen recently. In terms of other sectors, I know the residential sector, the apartment sector has done well recently, but again, I think there's some there's some pressures there on affordability in in the rental markets in the same way there is in the for sale markets for housing and there will be a lot of pressure on that and in the the retail and office sectors they're still facing kind of structural challenges from what we've seen since covid which is more home working and more online purchases so it's difficult to see um any markets weathering the storm much better than than any others and most of them are down so quite a grim picture overall, Andrew. And I suppose based on what you're saying, it's too soon to talk about recovery. But where do you see the market in 12 months from now? I think in the near term, certainly the first half of the year, where we'll still be talking about downside risks and concerned about how much the interest rate rises we've seen already will feed into property markets. I think later on, certainly if our current forecasts prove to be right, there may be some slightly brighter prospects going forward. I think the tightening cycles, it will be clearer where central banks are in terms of interest rate rises in the second half of the year. And in our view, it's likely that most of those will have played out by then. Obviously, also for property markets, it's long-term interest rates that are important. That's what affects valuations. And in housing, certainly on fixed rates, it's certainly borrowing is affected by long-term interest rates. And long-term interest rates may peak earlier. In fact, we think they will peak earlier than policy rates on this. So so by the end of the year, it may be that the worst of the very severe interest rate shock we've seen over the last 12 months might be over. But I think it's quite difficult to see a, a situation where yields will turn around that quickly. We would, we'd expect at best yields will stabilize. And in terms of pricing, well, the worst of it may be over and the rate of decline may slow. Prices may even stabilize in some cases by the end of next year. But I think we have to look to 2024 before we can really start looking forward with any kind of optimism. That was Andrew Byrne on the 2023 Outlook. And Andrew will be back in a bit to talk about property sector decarbonization. Now, which US metros are likely to be most in demand for remote workers? Post-pandemic has become a question with huge implications for U.S. real estate sector returns, and it's something our commercial property team keeps close track on as part of its coverage of market risks and opportunities. The team's just completed its latest rankings of the 52 biggest U.S. metros, and that's thrown up some surprising changes within the league table. Kieran Raichuro, the head of our U.S. commercial property coverage, spoke with his colleague Sam Hall about the latest rankings. And you'll hear Kieran first talking about how the team goes about quantifying the desirability of these metros. In terms of how we've tried to think about this impact on remote workers and migration patterns, we looked at the factors that workers would have historically looked at when deciding where to live or or potentially moving, and then thought about how those weightings might have changed over time. So overall, we you know our factors are the cost of living, which includes the cost of housing desirability of a place, its climate, and then the labor market, which would kind of break down into job opportunities and local earnings. Now, what we've assumed in our, in our analysis is that the importance of the labor market strength in a metro area 
is now much weaker for those workers than it would have otherwise been. And on, on the other hand, the cost of living is more important. Like if you have a choice of living every, anywhere, then clearly it's going to be more likely that you'll move somewhere where it's cheaper as well at the same time as wanting to move somewhere that's a nice place to live, which might have relatively low traffic, good schooling, good hospitals, green spaces, cultural things going on. So desirability is um, of more importance. And then climate, we've increased in importance slightly, but we don't actually think that's a particularly key factor. I mean, especially in the South, that's where apartment rents tend to be cheapest. And so it makes sense for this sort of scale of migration we're seeing and how that would be driving apartment demand. So the obvious point for apartments is people moving to an area need somewhere to live, right? So it's easy to see how an influx of people to an area drives apartment demand there. But with footloose workers, to me, it seems like the impacts on the office market would be a, a little less clear because these footloose workers already have a job and you know, they're not looking for somewhere with a good jobs market and office space. So how has this impacted office demand? Yeah, so we kind of made the case that uh, with skilled workers becoming a bit more distributed and less concentrated, essentially, that, that actually gives firms the capability to to choose their locations of whether it's their overall locations, headquarters or new offices, they can be a bit more flexible with where they choose. So in terms of that side of things, you know, things like the um, the ability to do business in places, the, the tax levels, I think that's something that's we think is quite important. So you now we've talked previously about Florida, Nevada, and North Carolina in particular being amongst the top ten states for for business tax climate according to the the tax foundation. So that's definitely one factor. But I guess you see similar on the apartment side with with Florida and, and like the there's more the zero rate of local income taxes. Yeah, definitely. I think there's been strong evidence of migration into Florida and that affecting apartment demand. I think Miami has been one of the, the markets which has seen the fastest rental growth over the last couple of years. And I think we expect it to continue to perform quite strongly. Admittedly, rents there are quite expensive compared to the national average, but I think there's a story about relocation of firms, particularly the expansion and relocation of financial services firms. We've seen anecdotal evidence of them moving from New York to Florida. And yeah, this is an industry where incomes are higher and landlords will find it more easy to push through those rents because the tenants can afford them. Have you found any similar sort of trends where there's been certain industries relocating from market to market? Yeah, so I was going to pick up on that. And, you know, the, the whole of the, the south southeast coast of Florida has, has benefited. So we previously talked about Miami, but also West Palm Beach, I think maybe Fort Lauderdale a bit less so. But yeah, also on that point you raised about people having salaries that they can actually go and spend in, in places like Miami. There's Aston Martin residences, which are currently under construction. They topped out late last year, I think. So it's going to be the tallest residential building outside of New York City when it's complete. The penthouse suite comes with a free Aston Martin Vulcan for whoever buys that. So it's um, yeah, it's becoming the place to go to potentially even ahead of like New York City in some cases. Yeah, just on just on your question, and in terms of in terms of sectors, definitely banking is one of them. So that's been that supported Charlotte as well, more so maybe for back office type type work. I guess there's two kind of elements. So one is tech, which we can talk about a bit maybe. So 
if you look at like total employment trends, or at least office-based employment trends, then tech has been doing really well prior to the pandemic, but also since, albeit perhaps less so in the last six months or so. But that's definitely been one of the key drivers. So Austin, I think, is, has been at the top of the, the rankings for office-based employment for quite a while. And then, you know, that, I guess that must have some follow-through or some read-through for, for apartments as well. Yeah, definitely. I think, well, we're, we're expecting some relocation of tech firms from more expensive markets like Seattle to elsewhere. And, you know, Seattle's seen really strong apartment rental growth recently, but I think that's one reason why we might expect it to cool. And it wasn't long ago that Meta announced that it was terminating one of its development plans in Manhattan, was it? After, yeah. after it previously pulled out a deal in Broadway. Yeah. Do you think this is something we should be reading into? So I think there's definitely some pullback from tech companies on their spending, which is something that's, like I say, only kind of come about in the last six months or so, or at least become more apparent in the last six months or so. But I think it also ties into the down the downside of tech because while, like I say, it's been driving a lot of the employment growth and actually the office demand for the last decade, really, in many cases, firstly, if it's not growing, then that's obviously a big concern for offices demand. But there's more of a specific pandemic-related issue here, which is that in terms of remote working, lots of tech jobs can be done from home. So what's the net effect there, do you think? Which one outweighs the other? Or is it more well, complicated so than that? Yeah. So, I mean, we've, we've kind of generally talk, talked about different factors as far as, you know, tech goes, we, and, and if you think about other sectors as well. So, you know, the, the data that we looked at showed that law firms have a really high ability to work remotely, the highest across all the different occupations, but clearly they don't seem to be like the data from parcel systems that picks up on like, average office occupancy across different sectors. That shows that law firm occupancy is actually about 15% higher than the average. So given that that's a sector that can work most remotely, maybe that's, that's not necessarily being done. Whereas on the other hand, computer and mathematical occupations, which would include most tech essentially, has the greatest likelihood of people working from home. So the data that we looked at, this is from like mid last year, it was around 35% of people who'd worked from home at least once in the last four weeks. And that also ties in with the data from coastal systems in terms of different metros where you've got like San Francisco and San Jose, where they've not got above um, 40% and 35% occupancy respectively, and even at the highest level, which was kind of like last, last uh, November. I mean, those, certainly San Francisco has been doing pretty poorly on the apartment side as well, hasn't it? San Francisco is definitely likely to be one of the losers out of the ones we're forecasting. You know, being one of those more expensive Western markets, I think it's, you know, it, it has already seen large amounts of out-migration and I think that's probably likely to continue. So these remote workers that are moving to find you know, more affordable locations to live in, whilst a lot of that's already happened, these changes don't happen overnight and that's probably likely to continue, I think. Let's remember that this shift to the Sunbelt markets has been a, a long-running trend as well. So I think that's that that will continue to to, do, to drive this movement. Yeah, that's just talking about demand at the moment. I think when you're actually talking about performance of, say, San Francisco and other markets, you need to take into account supply as well. So we've seen rapid rental growth across apartment markets over the past couple of years, having been strongest in the South, pretty weak in areas like San Francisco. 
But rental growth in the South doesn't tend to outperform for long because it's easier to build in the South, which generates a faster supply response and cools rental growth more quickly. But there's a key difference this time around being the pandemic, which has brought with it virus restrictions, has contributed to shortages in materials and labor and rising costs of both of those, which has lengthened the usual lag between starts and completions. In turn, that's amplified growth. I think that's one reason why we've seen such strong growth in the South persisting for as long as it has. But this also means that there's a record number of apartments under construction, which will soon feed through to completions. And we estimate that these supply responses, these pipelines, the largest in markets that have seen the strongest rental growth over the last couple of years, such as Austin, Miami, New York City, Phoenix, Seattle. So while most of these will continue to still see strong rental growth, I think over the next couple of years, they'll make way for markets with smallest supply pipelines, such as Atlanta and Dallas. But it must be quite a different story with the office markets where, yeah, we got the opposite here, haven't we? We've got an excess of supply. Yeah, we've got an excess of supply. And again, you've got these pipelines that are largest in the places that they were, you know, they were broadly planned prior to the pandemic. So it's, it's quite, I guess, random in a sense of which places have the highest pipelines and how they've been affected in the pandemic, as opposed to, you know, the Sunbelt was already growing quite strongly and therefore had decent sized pipelines. And then that's just become even more entrenched during the pandemic. So with offices, and there's a big pipeline completing this year in New York City. Seattle is another one with a big pipeline. And then Austin is actually another one, which is obviously one that has been doing well and we think will continue to do reasonably well. But certainly there, the pipeline is going to weigh on rent growth. We could think about or talk about some of the markets we don't kind of explicitly forecast on the office side as well. So um, we've picked out some of the winners based on their sector shares that we were talking about earlier as Las Vegas is up there, Memphis, Riverside. New Orleans, actually. And then Nashville was one of them, which is an interesting one because that also just moved up to the top of our ranking of those 52 apartment metros that we started off talking about right at the very start and maybe didn't actually talk about the actual ranking. So on, on that list, we had Nashville at the top and then it was dominated by some of those southern markets, which based on what we've talked about so far, wouldn't be a surprise. I guess the other thing in terms of, we could call it potential downside, but it would, would be pricing. Clearly there's been a lot of demand for apartments in the South from investors in the last couple of years. And so I guess the question would be whether that's, whether that's gone too far. So, you know, if we're, we're generally talking about a correction at the market level and is that going to be more pronounced in those markets? I guess it's the question. Yeah, I did some fair value analysis to look into this where I compared the expected returns for these markets with their required returns and the slowdown in rental growth that we're expecting for apartments combined with there being an extremely low spread with bond yields at the moment means that the sector as a whole looks significantly overvalued and is likely to see yield rises of at least 50 basis points. Looking at which markets look most overvalued, they tend to be those in the West, such as San Francisco, Denver, Portland. But we've also seen a couple of cases of Sunbelt markets, which have seen really strong investment competing down yields, such as Phoenix and Austin, which could also see larger yield rises. Whereas at the other end of the spectrum, metros like Chicago, New York City, Boston, Dallas, and LA all look less overvalued. The other thing that I guess would be 
worth thinking about or touching on would be the impact of all this migration essentially on other sectors. So, I mean, we don't looking too much or too often anyway at the, at the breakdown in terms of retail, but that's one area where in general, more people means more money spent. So certainly, you know, I guess we'd expect to see the winners there certainly correspond quite a lot with the winners in the apartments market, at least if we think about, you know, the, the work we've done on, on remote workers. Is that something that, well, is that something you agree with, but also is that something that corresponds with industrial as well? Yeah, I, th- I think that makes sense. And I think so. Like, as a result of the pandemic, there was that big shift in online spending. So I think that's probably the most important driver in the industrial markets. When the firms were looking for more space to store their goods to meet online requirements, I think the major distribution hubs were probably the first place to look, particularly those near ports. But that's caused a surge in rents, leaving rents now quite high and availability there quite low. So I think now firms looking for places to store their goods will increasingly look past those major distribution hubs in favor of nearby markets with better affordability and availability. We've seen evidence of this already with firms looking past LA in favor of Phoenix. And of these markets, I think this is where your point comes in. We think that rental growth prospects are even better in those Sunbelt markets due to the positive economic effects of inward migration there as well. So I think on a three-year basis, that leaves markets like Memphis, Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, Philadelphia, and Riverside, all with the greatest rent growth prospects. That was Kieran Reitcher and Sam Horn on their latest US Metro rankings. The property sector is responsible for nearly 40% of global CO2 emissions, with most of that coming from the operation of buildings. This is the challenge that the industry has to grapple with if it's going to help in the fight against climate change. David Oxley, who leads our climate coverage, recently spoke with Andrew Burrell following work they've done looking at real estate's climate challenge. Here's that conversation, and you'll hear Andrew first talking about emissions which come from the operation of buildings and what investors can do to decarbonize. It's about decarbonizing the energy rather than changes you can make to the actual building. But actually, a lot of landlords are developers. So if they choose green construction, they they can influence construction emissions. There are certain materials that are obviously yeah. a, lot, a lot worse in terms of greenhouse gases and what have you. So they can have some influence on that. But, but it's only really by changing how much energy they burn on site. That, that's the thing that they can control easily in the short term yeah i think mean, that's the simplest lever to to pull yeah you know, that yeah and then things like retrofitting to make buildings more efficient they they are pulling in the right direction but yeah i but mean that's I, aimed at the indirect bits but that is something that governments are working on too presumably yeah exactly that's a, that's a, a bigger challenge than just for the building sector per se there's some overlap there between the sort of electricity generating sector and the building sector on its own one point we make in the report, Andrew, is that the, the incentives to decarbonize are strongest in the investment sector. You know, as most things in economics, yeah. it all comes down to incentives. So there's, I think the one point we make is that everything's pushing investors in buildings in the direction of decarbonizing, partly because regulations are being tightened around them. So yeah. take the UK, for example, in the private rental market, you know, houses, property, a private property company has to adhere to certain energy standards to legally be allowed to be rented out. And those standards are set to tighten over time. 
So part of this is the incentive for investors to avoid being stuck with trapped assets as such or buildings that are not worth as much in the future. But one point you also make is that we've seen sort of a shift in demand towards greener buildings in certain markets post-pandemic, which you know, I think is quite surprising because it almost goes counter to the the structural change in demand for office space in the pandemic. So you take that as evidence that people are demanding higher quality buildings, greener buildings now compared with just a few years ago. I have to say that the attention on green buildings is nothing new. I mean, it's something that's been around the property sector for the last 15, 20 years or so, but the context seems to have changed. I mean, previously it was about a green premium and maybe the greener buildings would actually perform, but generally what's What's been found there is that the evidence is quite patchy on that. And some of the data that we've got, for instance, some MSCI data for France actually suggests that the green buildings have underperformed over the last five years or so. So, so that's always been a bit vague. There may be reasons in the stats for that, but the clear case has never been provided there. But, but certainly the brown discount and the push factors from regulations seem to be having an impact. And the onset of COVID seems to have kind of been drawn a bit of a line on that. The hardest thing, and I, and I would say the evidence is still pretty early and tentative. What the big thing after COVID was working from home and, and, and you know, we've done a lot of research looking at fairly big impacts on demand from working from home, but owners will be facing a situation where occupiers may be reducing the amount of space they need by 10 or 20%, depending on how efficiently they use it. And we expected that to have a big negative impact on property markets after COVID. We, we expected a bit of a hangover, but, and again, I would say, I, I would still say the evidence is still quite patchy, but what it seems is that we have seen a recovery in office markets. That's been particularly clear in some of the larger office markets, especially like London, Paris, and the big US cities. But there, there is some evidence that that recovery is coming through much stronger at the prime end of the market. And as these, as what we would define as prime property is the kind of building that is much more likely to have better green credentials. Right. Yeah, there, there, there is an association. I mean, there will be other things driving it as well. And I think the reasoning, certainly what I've heard industry practitioners say is if an occupier is looking to downsize, then they can take a lot less space and they'll save money by doing that. And at the same time, they may use some of that savings to upgrade their space and kind of future proof it. It's a horrible phrase, but to try and try and move into a space that, that will have, um, more longevity in terms of its usefulness, because it is more green, it's less likely to suffer from some of the, some of the regulation issues that, that more marginal buildings might face in, you know, maybe not immediately, but in five years time. Right. Um, and you say that this is a factor behind prime buildings. How yeah. disparate is it? I mean, when. One thing you read a lot about is that the costs of retrofitting and to bring buildings up to standards that I suppose A, meet regulations, tightening regulations, but also B, make buildings desirable for tenants in this changing landscape you describe. Clearly, I suppose some areas and some sectors and parts of the market, that would be much more of a challenge to 
generate the required returns and rents to make that economic. Is that right? Or is that what you're expecting the to see? There's been a bit more patchy. The argument, the argument would be that the more expensive, i.e. rents, uh, uh, locations with higher rent potential, maybe better placed to make these investments. This is just, you know, a lot of the occupiers will be moving within a, an area anyway. So they're, they're, they're not going to be moving from a regional market into a prime central London market. Yeah. They'll be moving from somewhere else in, in central London, but London rents are significantly higher than elsewhere. There's more margin for the landlord to, to actually spend the capex to, to upgrade the building. So, so it's less marginal. Whereas you can imagine in a sort of maybe in a, the costs of upgrading a, a, a fairly tired old office in a, in a not great location in a much smaller city where the rental potential is significantly less, get, then the calculus is completely different. In that case, yeah. it, it, some of the impacts from working from home could even argue against having it as an office at all. You might want to convert it to some other use. Right. Yeah. I was going to ask, what is the end game of that? You know, I mean, did what? Do, do yeah, a lot it of these depend. It does depend on the market, you know, on the home working patterns, on the different industrial structures of the different markets. So it's quite a complex balance. But obviously, you've, you've got rents of you know twenty, thirty pounds a square foot outside of London, and then up to and above a hundred pounds a square foot in London. That that is a huge difference in terms of the cost of letting space in those areas. Another thing you point out is that you're quite downbeat about the potential for decarbonisation happening in the owner-occupied residential sector. I suppose the key point is there is just the incentives there without sort of government support and intervention, which we'll get onto, are, are just not as large and perhaps the means to retrofit or change over to a heat pump for these things are expensive. You know, Am I right in thinking you think the progress in the residential front is going to be slower than on the investment sector. I think that's a pretty key thing we'd point out, isn't it? I'd certainly be more concerned about that because I mean, it, you know, you're dealing with, with a very different uh, situation. If a major landlord with, with many properties is looking across his properties, see some of them are going to potentially become obsolete. That's going to reduce just the income that he'll get. Then obviously you, you weigh up the, the possibilities on that. If it's a single person or single family living in a, in a house or a, or, or a flat or what have you, and they're facing large costs to make their home compliant with environmental standards, it's completely different. So way of thinking, I mean, they're in the same way, if they don't spend that money, the risk is that the house becomes unsaleable. But that, for, for a lot of people, that just might not be that much of a concern. You know, it depends, you know, what, what plans they have for the house. And also, you know, if there is a, some money to be spent, it, it's whether they can afford it or not. So there are a lot of reasons to expect that the progress in the residential sector, unless it's given a nudge in some way, it won't be going at the same kind of rate that it might do in the, uh, in the commercial sector. Yeah. It is not just a nudge in the financial sense. I think certainly one thing we've seen in the installation of air source heat pumps is, you know, as a combination of kind of expensive upfront costs that the government in the UK, at least is alleviating now alleviating river grant, but there's shortages of qualified installers to get these things installed, you know, and. And the chart we showed in the report is the heat pump sales per thousand households is languishing in the UK is, is well at the bottom of the sort of European league table and ominously running well below where the government's 
targeting. The government's hoping for 600,000 heat pump installations every year by 2028. But in 2021, only about 43,000 were installed. So there's a huge gulf to be bridged here. And as you say, I mean, it seems as if, yeah, I mean, and that, and that, and, and that. It's, a, it's a big cost, isn't it? I mean, it is a big cost, yeah. It's, it's, you're asking people to make a, an investment of thousands of pounds, you know, in their house that delivers them almost no tangible <laughs> benefit. Yeah, uh, yeah. Besides, you know, it's compliant. It means they can move more easily, potentially when the regulations have tightened. But, but you know, that might seem a very distant benefit. Can we now... Can we talk a bit about construction and how that fits into the overall question of how the real estate sector is going to decarbonize? One of the things that we said when we looked at the future of offices and the reduction of um, demand for offices is that we thought it would materially affect working from home trains would materially affect how much development there was in the office sector. So right. it would actually, and you know, one of the ways to, to, to prevent the greenhouse gases, um, the effects of greenhouse gases getting worse is not to build anything. Yeah. Of course, globally, you could say in the developed market, I think that the outlook for the developed market in terms of new building and development, and then particularly in the office and retail sectors, is fairly weak. And we'd be fairly pessimistic about that just because those sectors seem to be in secular decline in terms of the overall demand. Yeah, what, over, what, overall you know, demand populations and big, yeah. exactly, demand shifting. But in the developing world, where you have fast growing populations, different, completely different kind of economies, the, the situation is likely to be very different. And, you know, to the, to the credit of the estimates that are being made to 2050 by global groups that look at these things, they have some, some pretty punchy expectations of how much the, the stock of property will go up. And a large amount of that is, is not in the developed world and it's in the emerging markets. Right. So I suppose there's two things going on that looking forward, there's a sort of race between making construction more efficient and less carbon intensive. But as you say, even if you can make it 50% more efficient, but you put in a hundred percent more buildings, say that's still going to yeah, lead to a net increase a in emissions. That, it's, but yeah, but, but yeah. yeah, it's, it's a, yeah. I think it's something like 50% yeah. they're looking at and that that's. You know, over a similar period, the, the amount of development since 2010, even in countries like China is staggering. You know, you, you're talking about the creation of new cities. So, you know, that won't be happening in the West, obviously. The, the sheer demand for extra floor space around the world is going to limit efforts to decarbonize the construction sector. Well, I mean, it, it seems, yeah, there will continue to be research into how to produce steel and aluminium and things like that more greenly yeah you know like reducing the carbon footprint of that and you, you do you, you read headlines all the time about breakthroughs in technology that allow you to make concrete and you know not using as much energy there's such a thing as green steel as it stands it's still being produced by renewable energy which yeah has a much lower footprint, carbon footprint than still being produced by coal-based energy for example but as you say i mean Fundamentally, the, the, the easiest way to reduce the carbon footprint of the construction sector would be to stop building anything, but that doesn't look likely at a global level. No, and the, I mean, the other thing is the, the emerging world is slightly, probably slightly behind in terms of green building regulations and, the, and, the, and some of the, the, the rules and guidance 
that, that are being adopted, I mean, particularly in Europe. But, you know, the, there are codes, there are building codes in other countries, but they tend to be more voluntary and, and more patchy than, than, than in the developed markets. And that's it for this episode. The Property Team will be doing more of these special podcasts on market trends in the coming months, alongside their ongoing written output, their online client briefings, and their in-person roundtables. You can learn more about our award-winning research into US, UK, and European property markets on our website, capitaleconomics.com. But until our next episode, goodbye.